For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. The book of Ephesians opens up with an explosion of praise for the blessings lavished upon us from God our Father, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit, the three in one. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, Every Spiritual Blessing. Heavenly Father, we look to you and we ask for your blessing now as we take on uh, a new study, the book of Ephesians. Lord, we we're open, speak to our hearts, and change our lives, we pray in Christ's name, amen. amen. Of all the New Testament uh, churches, probably the one at Ephesus is the uh, one most well-known, probably because it gets the most ink in the, the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us how Christianity spread and how churches were founded, and in Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20, you read about the one founded in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul. And we just remember some pretty miraculous things that went on in Ephesus. And so people pretty much know about that church and the epistle, six chapters uh, written to them after the church was founded. Well, let's get an idea about uh, how Paul had a relationship with them in the first place, and then how it came uh, to the occasion of this letter, all right? So that gives you good context. Uh, for that, we'll have to travel to Turkey. You ready to do that? Because Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, now, so the Christianity spread from Israel, which would be down here under uh, Syria there, uh, and it spread westward, from Turkey uh, and, and other places, but primarily it went to Europe from, the, from Jerusalem, from Israel. And, and so Paul comes to Ephesus, the second missionary journey, just, just for context here. He comes around and he stops in and he only, according to the book of Acts, he only spends about three weeks there. He preaches in the synagogues. He gets a, a good reception. Perhaps a little church started there with a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Paul wants to go to, back to Jerusalem, and he's on a schedule. So he says, hey, I can't stay, but perhaps if it's God's will, love that. If it's God's will, I'll come back to you. So apparently it was God's will, because two years later, on his final missionary journey, missionary journey number three, he comes back, he visits the church, Churches, uh, he, he wants to visit the churches that he's established, and he gets all the way started, and really his first major stop will be in Ephesus, and that is where uh, if, uh, Acts chapter uh, 19, that talks about everything that went down there for three years, he spent the most time of any New Testament church in Ephesus. And so you, you'll, you'll, you'll remember some memorable moments there in three years. Well, first of all, he worked with the Jews for about a year, and he reached a dead end with them. And then he rented a lecture hall called the Hall of Tyrannus. There you can read about it in the book of Acts, where he discipled and preached the gospel and sent missionaries, so much so that the book of Acts says that the entire province of Asia, 
this Turkey was Asia Minor. And so whenever you read in the Bible about Asia, you're reading about Turkey and Turkey alone. And so uh, he established that school, raised the disciples, and the whole landmass of Turkey, it's a big place, uh, heard the gospel and churches sprouted up everywhere. Now, uh, after those three years, and well, some memorable events, of course, were... Um, you remember the bonfire where the gospel impacted so many Ephesians. They left their occultic ways and they brought all their magic scrolls and little idols and, and, and books of spells. And they brought and burned in a gigantic fire. And the worth of the books alone, the Bible says, was 50,000 days of wages. 50,000 days of wages, that bonfire was burning those scrolls. But the big thing you'll remember, of course, was what was famous in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the temple of Diana. Uh, the Roman, her Roman name is Diana. Her Greek name is Artemis, right? Well, what happened was, as the gospel went forth and people got saved, uh, they weren't worshiping false idols anymore. And one of the guys who made a great living making little silver replicas of Diana, or if you want to call her Artemis, for tourists and little idols, right? He lost his business because everybody was turning to the living and true God instead of to uh, a fake one. And, and so that was a marvelous place. Uh, in the world's estimation, 127 columns, 200 feet high. It was just a sight to behold. And so Demetrius lost his business, stirred up the whole silversmith union. And to a mob, they grabbed Paul and the disciples, the pastoral team, and dragged them into this place, the, the theater, which is still there. The cool thing about when you read about a place in the Bible is that you can actually go and see it because it, ex it exists, unlike other <laughs> uh, books, so-called books of divine inspiration. Where was that city? There's no evidence, but here is the place. And some of you have traveled to Turkey and, and been there. I have been in that Colosseum myself. And so for two hours in that theater, they shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. They were ready to kill Paul. And they, he barely escaped with his life, but that was the end of his three years, and he and the pastoral team, and some left, of course, the pastor of the church, went on to finish the third missionary journey, which I need. Third missionary journey. Now, this is the last time he's going to see them. He goes off, and he goes visits all the churches he started and planted, and then he comes back around, and he sails, and he puts in it my leadus. That's Acts chapter 20, where you well, he doesn't go to Ephesus. It's been another year, and he calls from Miletus to the Ephesian pastors, come down and see me for one last talk. And that's that impassioned speech that says, pastors of Ephesus, false teachers are going to arise from your own church, and they're going to have a sound doctrine, and they're going to divide the sheep resist them, hold firm to the true gospel. And with many tears, he warned them. And uh, he said, the last thing I want to say is, you'll never see me again. The Lord has shown me this is it for us. And so a long, tearful goodbye. They hug and they pray. 
and he gets on a boat and goes back to Jerusalem. Now, here's what happened from there. He gets arrested. <laughs> you know, he gets arrested a lot. And uh, he gets shipped off first to Caesarea, part of Israel. He appeals to Caesar. And they say, you appeal to Caesar? To Caesar you will go. And they ship him off to Rome. They lock him up. It's been a few years. Well, he's got some time on his hand. So he wants to write to a few of his friends. So at Rome's expense... <laughs> They provide the parchment and the pen, and Paul and the Holy Spirit begin to write letters. Philemon, Colossians, Philippians, and the Ephesians. It had been 10 years since. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 10 years since the bonfire, 10 years since the the school of Tyrannus was uh, ministering to uh, the entire region. Ten years have passed. He's in a prison cell, and he's writing them, and he begins his letter as usual. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just a pretty fairly simple way to start a letter. And as you're about to see, it, it's the, the content of the letter is uh, anything but simple. The greeting may be, but that's where it stops because Paul is about to dive in to a 12-verse sentence in Greek. Verse 13 through 14 is like an explosion of praise that has no punctuation in the Greek. It's one long sentence. And so, yeah, simple greeting, but buckle your seatbelts, all right? I was talking to a lady in the coffee shop, and she heard me talking about this. Oh, man, it's so deep and profound, and there's no warm-up. He just dives into these deep theological truths, right? And she said, oh, I better change my order. Make that a triple, you know, <laughs> It was pretty funny. You had to be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, if you want simple, you go to First John. First John, God is love. Live in that love. God is light. Walk in that light. Everybody, love one another. That's all. <laughs> Beautiful, elegant, genius simplicity. Ephesians. Ephesians is beautiful and elegant for how profound and deep, you know, it is like, as one writer put it, uh, the most profound and mature of all the New Testament books, the king of the epistles and the crown of the apostle Paul's writing. Now, why is he writing? It's important to know when you write a letter, what's the purpose, right? Well, the Thessalonians and other New Testament books, it was to address problems, not this one. There are no problems there. There's not one mention of a problem. In Thessalonica, there were problems with theological misunderstandings, uh, morality issues, relationship troubles, problem people in the congregation. And the whole two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, is addressed to those problems. Now, Romans 8.28, thank God for the problems or we wouldn't have First and Second Thessalonians. In fact, most of the New Testament is written, they call it a polemic. A polemic is an answer to a dispute. So because there was false teaching in Galatia, 
Galatians is written to address the false teaching, you see? And so, but what's up in Ephesus? No problems. The book divides quite nicely. The first three chapters is just, here's what God has done for you. It's deep, it's profound, it's wonderful, it makes your head spin, but he's asking you, now that you know this and you have right thinking, here come three chapters, the last half, how you should respond, how you should walk, how you should live. Because from right thinking will come right behavior, always that way. Uh, what is King James there? Uh, Proverbs, I think it's 23, uh, and where it says, as a man thinks in his heart, it was Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, verse 7. As a man thinks, as a person thinks in his heart, so is he or she. In other words, if you think God is always waiting to bring the boot down, where's the other boot coming, the other shoe, uh, you're going to live differently than if you're always thinking, God can't wait to just bless me. He's waiting to send me a blessing of strength to strengthen me because my God is for me. If you're thinking those kinds of thoughts, well, then you're going to live in a different way. Uh, you know what? Ephesians chapter 1 is the cure for every Christian who has an Eeyore spirit. You know? <laughs> oh, I'm going through another trial. We're all going to die. You know? <laughs> You know, God's mad at me. I can't do anything right, you know. I'm probably going to get to heaven and have a little ghetto house. <laughs> hey, listen. Stinking thinking like that, that defies the word of God, and you just want to give it a nest and let it play over and over again will produce... A like-minded behavior. Fatalism in your head produces a fatalistic life. And so Galatians, Ephesians, and Galatians for that matter, is written to the church at large. It's called a circular letter. It's just written for born-again Christians. Here's what God has done. Now, live up to it. Live to be who God has made you to be. Be who you are in Christ. And so that's what we're going to take a look at. The, the simple greeting here, uh, three things, author, recipients, and message. Uh, Paul, he changed his name from Saul in the Hebrew. Saul, the English way. Uh, it, Paul means small. And you know what the Bible says about humility? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the small and to the humble. Right? If any man exalt himself, he shall be humbled. But he who humbles himself shall be exalted. So Paul said, listen, I'm small. All right? I'm small in stature. He was a small man, they say. And he was small in significance in his own mind to the, the magnificence of God and the, and the grandeur of the gospel. And God exalted him, lowercase as the greatest Christian man that ever lived. And did, did the Lord ever get the bang out of his buck with Paul, man? 14 New Testament epistles. The Holy Spirit worked through him. 14. Uh, I, technically, 13 or 14 churches that we know about, he founded. It's just an amazing 
thing. And so he calls himself an apostle. The word apostle means to be sent, right? And when he's telling King Agrippa his testimony, he says, this is what the Lord said to me, King Agrippa. He said, I will rescue you from your own people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles, non-Jews. I am sending you, that's what apostle means. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the apostle Paul. I love that. He says, by the will of God, God save the world from self-called pastors. Just save us. I, you can go see who the guys who call themselves by the will of themselves. They go into full-time ministry for all kinds of reasons. They're deadly and poisonous and empty and, and condemned and under God's curse. Oh, God is going to deal terribly with them. You just click, 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 and no matter where you click, money, 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 send your money and seed faith and promise and, you know, plant your seed of faith today. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty good. I got a little That was pretty good. Oh, right. I just watch it when I'm in the mood to increase my blood pressure. When I want to have a work, a cardiovascular workout, I just go up there and, and you know, if you sell the, no, I'm, I'll stop. <laughs> Holy water that he is blessed. If you drink it, it'll cure you in Jesus' name. I, I don't want to be anywhere near him on judgment day. I really don't. A little distance. Amen. He says, this wasn't my idea. I was minding my own business killing Christians when suddenly a light shined on me from heaven. It was by God's will that he's sending me to do work. It has nothing to do with my will. There are 17 qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. You do not call yourself uh, into ministry. It has to, and it was evident, wow, when the guy opened his mouth. Okay, that's a gift. That's a calling. But not just ability in the pulpit. You had to have character, 17 character qualities, a checklist. First Timothy chapter 3. You see, he says it was by the will of God, and he qualified. And then he goes on to tell us we live in two places. You know, he says, hey, to the saints, the word saint is used of any born-again Christian. It comes from a word to, that means to belong to God for his purposes. So when you come to Christ, you're done with your own agenda in life, and now you're set apart. That's the word. That's all it means. And he says, look at you. You live in the city. You're set apart by God to live in a city. But you're also, not only do you live in Ephesus, but you live in Christ. So we always have a dual citizenship. Philippians chapter 3, we're citizens in heaven. To be in Christ means this invisible door opened up, we walked into a kingdom, the kingdom of God, and the Holy Spirit knit our hearts to his, and we became one with him under his care, under his banner of love and ownership. So yeah, we live in Santa Rosa, but we also live in Christ, serving him and being about our father's business. And then he says just the, the traditional Greek, greeting was grace, which just means may God treat you better than you deserve, 
And all God's people said, Amen. Yeah. And from God's grace, peace. And that peace is the Jewish idea. So he's throwing in the Gentile idea of a greeting, grace, better than you deserve to be treated that way, to be favored by God without merit. And once you experience the grace of God and the only way you'll ever feel peace or no peace is to have experienced the grace of God that lets you off the hook for free, that never looks at your own works, but only the work of God, that is when you can say, it is well with my soul. Because you know what? Not even I can mess this up. Not even I can mess this up because my contract is through the blood of Christ, not the work of man. Amen? Amen. So grace and peace. And now he's going to go for that volcanic eruption of theological gemstones. Are you ready to do this? All right. Instead of amen, listen, when you don't respond properly to me, just let me know. Let me tell you this. It only makes me worse. Uh, now I'm going to make you <laughs> do this. Come on. <laughs> okay, the lady was saying no, shaking your head. No, just kidding. Usually I say amen, but there are a couple times where I'm going to say something that just is like, uh, yes means no, and no means yes. <laughs> and instead of amen, you could go, okay, ready? Here's the sentence. Check it out. Yeah, deep breath. Here we go. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. <laughs> Come on, admit it. Come on, when you read that this morning, you're like, Oh, wow, I can't wait to go to church to find out what that means. I mean, I'm interested to know what it means myself. And so we're going to break it down into bite-sized pieces. And believe it or not, though there's no real punctuation in Greek, it divides quite nicely. And wait till you see how. Very amazing, because the Holy Spirit is working, is very orderly and structured. And here's what it is, really 3 through 14 is praise to God for every spiritual blessing he's given us. 
And then I love this because the last part of the chapter, which we won't take a look at this morning because we've got this to chew on, uh, 15 to the end, he offers a prayer. He realizes what he just did. And so he offers a prayer that we might understand what he just said. <laughs> it's really practical, you know. So we'll take a look at the prayer for understanding this uh, next week. And so here's how it divides quite nicely. Blessings of God. Well, guess what you find out? The blessings from the Father are in verses 3 to 6. Blessings from the Son are from verses 7 to 12. And the last two verses are from the blessings of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to take a look at one of the references to the Trinity, kind of um, expressed through the, how the different ministries of the Godhead Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, are manifested. And we're going to take a look at first the blessings of the Father. Uh, let's project three through six there. Very good. All right, so uh, speaking of things that are hard to understand, the Trinity, let's talk about it. Because the, in Ephesians, there are references to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, eight times. So if you want to understand the Trinity, you would go to the book of Ephesians. And so my favorite way to explain, we got to talk about this because he's going to talk about it. And this is divided into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He mentions all three of them blessing us in different ways. So what's up with it? How can three persons be one God? Listen to this. This is the best way to understand the Trinity. It doesn't solve all the problems, but it's helpful. And I've mentioned this before. Go back to creation. God throws this line out to get our attention. Let us make man in our image. What are you talking about? Who are you talking to? Who is us? Let us make man in our image? Well, what? let's look at what he made and how that reflects his image. Up comes a man who is three parts but one. He is body, soul, and spirit. He says, let us make man in our three-in-one image. Up comes Adam, body, soul, and spirit. Paul tells the Thessalonians, may God bless you, body, soul, and spirit. So we got three of them because Paul said we do, right? We are three, but I am one. I do not walk around saying, well, my spirit likes classical music, but my soul likes country, you know. <laughs> no, you can't talk like that. You'd have to be on medication. <laughs> my body is different from my soul. My soul is different from my spirit, but I'm one. And when I think of myself, I'm one. And if you try to separate me, I'm dead. Try to separate. Oh, let's separate them out because they're not all the same. Yeah, they're not all the same, but they form one. And if you try to have one without the other, you've got a dead man, all right? You take my spirit away, you've got a corpse. You take the Father from Jesus or Jesus from the Spirit, you don't have, the, you don't have God. Why? Listen, proof, John chapter 8, the Jews. He's talking about the Father. And he says, hey, the Jews say, God is our Father. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me because I come from the father. In fact, 1 John put it, to you, put it to us this way. 
No one who denies, listen, no one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father as well. Why? It's a package item. You cannot have one without the other. Three persons, one plus one plus one equals one in the Trinity math. <laughs> listen, I, body, soul, and spirit, I get it, right? So, and let me throw this on top and then we'll dive in. The Shema, the Jewish prayer. Pray every morning. It's the first words a little Jewish boy or girl learns. It says from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. Here's what it says in the Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our gods, and the gods is one. He could have said El, but he said Elohim, the God family, the we. Let us make man in our image. Hear, O Israel, the gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is one, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no plural in the Greek in the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And so he says, let's talk about the blessings of God first, God the Father. And so he says, first of all, there, praise be to him. He's given us everything we could ever ask for in heavenly realms. It just means spiritually every blessing that we need in Christ. So I was seated on a plane. I had my Bible open. The lady next to me made the mistake of engaging me in conversation. And she volunteered the information. She's from Forestville, of all places, on a plane heading to a faraway place. Uh, she volunteers the information. Oh, I, I used to be a Christian. In fact, I kind of still consider myself a Christian. But I added, I said, Buddhism? Because she had a beaded bracelet, right? And she said, yeah, I added Buddhism to supplement what I wasn't getting from Christianity. <laughs> So I looked down at my open Bible, and I went, oh, I love that. And I turned to 2 Peter chapter 1, and I put the Bible over there, and I said, read verse 3. And you know how I do. I make them read it out loud, you know. So she's reading it to herself. I'm like, no, read it out loud. So the guy next to you could hear it. No. So here's what she reads. This is after saying it wasn't enough. I had a supplement, you know. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. So she paused and adjusted her glasses and said, oh my, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> that was, you know, what else do you say? You know, you say, that's interesting. Well, we had a good talk and she said, you know, I never... Realize that the Bible makes that claim that in Christ we have everything that we need. Once you have Christ, man, you've won the heaven's jackpot, really. Yeah, there is nothing else. Well, in my mind, he's about to list them now, all the blessings that the Trinity affords us. Speaking of every spiritual blessing, uh, your mind and mine went to the rent and 
provision and anxiety and comfort when we're grieving and peace that passes understanding and all of these things going to heaven. But that's not in the list. He's going to say all those blessings come from the king royal blessings in spiritual places that you Christians don't always think about. There is a a mother blessing, a father blessing that's higher that causes you to be blessed in all your other little 10,000 reasons for my heart to find ways of blessing. So he's going to start calling you to realize there's a blessing that makes all the other blessings possible. And blessing number one comes from God the Father, and that is he chose you in love before the world was. So let's take a look at that. Paul goes back in his mind before the foundation of the world. Verse four, before creation, before the commencement of time in 24-hour days, in a past eternity when there was only God. And in that pre-creation, God did something. He voted for you. The, The term election That's where we get the idea that the doctrine of election simply means that in eternity past, God cast his decision, cast his vote for you. You were the object of a decision made in eternity past before there was an earth, before you existed, before Christ went to the cross. He cast his vote. He made a decision. And that decision and that vote and that grace fell on you. Now, yeah, oh no, that's, a, that's this, sorry, <laughs> the you part and me part that God would think of us in that kind of love. Listen, he determined to make us who didn't exist yet his own children through Jesus' work on the cross, which hadn't yet been accomplished. So God made the decision really based on what? It couldn't have been on anything you've done because you didn't exist yet. So all your idea about works is off the table because this was done, accomplished, and over, meaning you're already in heaven back before there was an earth, before you could do anything or say anything. (laughs) What does Titus say? At one time, we were also foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and lusts. But when the kindness of love, the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his uh, mercy. So it begs the question, well, wait a second here. Did I choose God? Yes, you did. Because he chose you. Now, wait a second here. You're thinking to yourself, you know, how is that possible? My answer, the simple version, is what if he calls everyone? Because Jesus said many are called. I take that to mean that God calls everybody. And then Jesus says, but few are chosen. What if in his calling of everyone, he knows who is willing to answer? And so he answers their answer with a choice because they're choosing. Amen? Yeah. Wasn't the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. I listen to how one seminary professor put it. Explain election 
to try to explain election, you might lose your mind. But to try to explain it away, you might forfeit your soul because there is no salvation apart from the election of God. Now, I've kind of showed you this. It's a crazy maker to try to think how without, listen to this, without violating your free will and giving you a choice, he chose before. How, how are those two things possible? Well, here's the theological math problem, as I've showed you before, and it's a crazy maker. Take a look, right? I mean, see that poor dude? I mean, listen, and I've told you this before. When you get to heaven, you're going to know as you are fully known. You're going to have a different mind. It's going to be you perfected. You'll be able to look at that and go, of course, that makes total sense. But right now, they seem diametrically opposed, two things. But God, listen, it would be a total farce for God to say, hey, choose this day whom you shall serve. Choose life, choose death. I lay them before you, choose. If God knew that we couldn't choose, that's a farce. There's no way. He says, whosoever will believe shall not perish. Whosoever says, you have a choice. And you're, you're thinking, well, what if I'm not chosen? I've told you last week. Then choose him, and you'll have been chosen. It's so easy that way. Amen? So listen, let me just say this. D.L. Moody, the Billy Graham of the 1800s, put it this way. The elect are the whosoever wills. The non-elect are the whosoever will not. That's what it is, you see. And what a shame. What a shame to get to heaven and, and having stumbled yourself because you can't understand the mysteries of how God works and his infinite mercies, that he will have mercy on whom he will and, and, and withhold mercy from whom he will withhold mercy. And then you're stumbled by that because you can't do the math now and you've excluded yourself from eternal life because you can't figure out the Godhead. That's a shame because once you got saved and once you got there and God fixed everything, then you would go, oh, that's right. But you excluded yourself because you made it as a prerequisite for you to say yes, the, uh, the foolish idea that you're going to understand everything now. You're not going to, if you could understand the infinite, most high God who speaks and can make a planet, if you can figure him out, that's scary. <laughs> Amen? All right, listen. God's not the only one who's going to say, well done, great, good and faithful servant on that great day. First of all, not everybody will hear it who ends up in heaven. There are some will crash on the runways of heaven. They themselves shall be saved, but as though through fire, with nothing to show for it, Jesus says, welcome. I love you. No well done. Others will hear, well done. You stewarded your gifts and resources and calling. Well done. Enter into the joy of the Lord. You see those 10 cities there in the new kingdom? That's for you, right? But anyway, my point is, when we get there and anybody hears, well done, you know what we're going to say? We're going to see who's there, who's not there. We're going to see how everything worked together in our crazy, mixed up, upside down, grievous world. In the, on the earthling side of things, and we're going to get it, and the light's going to come on, and we're going to look at him and go, wow, well done, perfect, 
who's there, who's not there. Why'd you let me go through this? Oh, if I only knew that then. And then he'll say, well, I tried to tell you. <laughs> it was working that out for good. I don't know if you caught that verse in Romans 8.28. So let's move on to the son. We've seen the blessings of the father. I do want to say, you know, why do you think he told us this? To confuse you, to make you kind of tweaked, to, dis- to disturb you, to make you think, well, what about this and what about that? <laughs> Do you think that's why he's revealing this to you? Or did he say, you know, I want you to be settled and assured and confident and, and filled with joy and peace that I am for you and this thing is done. Just walk it out, buddy. Walk it out. Instead of you trying to figure it out, why don't you just live it out with peace and confidence, knowing you are the object of God's great love in eternity past. He sees, looking through everybody, and he goes, you, I vote for you. Just say thank you. <laughs> thank you over there. All right, so seven through 12, we've got the blessings of the sun. And we've read these verses, so I'm going to jump right in and and call your attention to some of them. First blessing from God the Son is called redemption. And in these verses, you see three things. What he did, it's called redeemed us. What that means, forgiveness of sins, and how he did it through his blood and the death on the cross. So let's talk about what he did for us. It's called redemption. It's not a word we use a lot. So let me explain what that means. It has three basic meanings. Number one, to make something that is bad or unpleasant better or more acceptable. That's nice. Number two, to exchange something such as a coupon for something else, like his goodness for our sin. Or number three, to buy back something such as a stock or bond or in our case, our souls. Redemption and the idea of buying back. 60 million slaves under the Roman Empire, um, sold like furniture, no rights, and some of them could be really severely abused. Others were more like indentured servants, not so bad, but uh, some of them had it really bad. But if somebody was wealthy, they could walk in, lay down the gold, and redeem them, buy the slave, and set the person free, That slave was no longer a slave and had no connection to that abusive master. This is now coming to be the idea. How does it play spiritually for us, the metaphor? Anyone who who sins is a slave to sin, and sin is the master. Who's the father of sin? So who's the overseer? That would be Satan, the devil. So technically speaking, those who are not born again who sin without forgiveness or the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, are owned and are slaves to their own sin, to death, to condemnation, and worse yet, the devil, right? Unless somebody could redeem that slave, purchase that slave for the price, the going price, that would be the life, the death for the sin, because the wages of sin is death. Let me uh, give you a good picture of this because it's hard with the words of redemption. 
Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Little guy you love to hate. He sells his brother and sister to the white witch for what? For some Turkish delight, right? And so he gobbles it down in her presence, you know, and he wants more and all of this. And then he finds out, whoa, I'm in trouble. I got what I wanted, and now I'm a slave under the spell of the white witch. And so um, Aslan does a merciful thing, and he sends one of his guards to go get uh, Nasty Edmund out of her clutches and brings Nasty Edmund, guilty, vile, spoiled brat, into his camp there, right? So he's snatched out of harm's way and brought into the presence of the king there. Now, enter the white witch. The white witch comes into Camp Aslan because she lost her boy. And she's mad about it, and she's got rights. So she marches right in front of the king and says, I got it written out for you. It's easier to follow. She says, you have a traitor among you, Aslan. And all the crowd's like, what? His offense was not against you, Aslan says. The white witch responds, have you forgotten the laws upon which Narnia has been built? And Aslan says, do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. Well, he was just calling her what she was. <laughs> it sounds bad, but yeah. I, I was there, Aslan says, when it was written. Hello. <laughs> the white witch says, then you'll remember that every traitor belongs to me. His blood is my property. Peter, drawing the sword, says, they try to come and take him. And the white witch mocks him with laughter and says, do you really think that mere force will deny me my right, little king? As Aslan knows, I have a right to Edmund's blood as the law demands. If not, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. That boy pointing out Edmund, will die on the stone table as it is written, you dare not refuse me. In response to this, sweet sister there, Susan says, or Lucy, says, can anything be done, Aslan? And Aslan says, oh, all will be done that can be done. But my dear, it may be a little more difficult than you think. And with that, he walks out with the white witch to make an agreement. And here's the agreement. It's called redemption. He says, give me Edmund, and I will die on the stone table in Edmund's, on Edmund's behalf. You lose him. By the way, this is going to lead to, and the verse will show you, to forgiveness. From redemption comes forgiveness. You loose him from your clutches and you can bind me. So interesting. The word for forgiveness in the Greek is aphimami. And it means to loose or to untie or to let go. So he says, uh, you let go of this one, even though he's rightfully yours, but I'll trade you for me. And the heartbeat that needs to stop in him will be my heart. How much more would you like to take my life than his? Agreed. So he's let go. 
but to be let go is to be called aphimami, forgiven. So he's forgiven because Aslan will lay down his life on the stone table and with all her eager wickedness and devilish accomplices, the knife plunges through his heart. But that was done in Peter's and, and Lucy and Susan's and Edmund's name. They were redeemed. The witch could have never walked back in and say, I want that one, that one, that one, and that one. Because you know what they were doing? Let me tell you last night. No more because they've been bought and paid. And those sins were paid for. When Jesus says it is finished, the Greek word there, teleo, is an accounting term that means paid in full. In him is forgiveness, a fiume. Let me give you one more before we go with the last two verses. A picture so cool, many people miss it. Matthew 27, Jesus being tried before Pilate. Pilate is freaked out. His wife has had a nightmare. Have nothing to do with him. I had a nightmare. And he's already freaked out because Jesus said he came from above, born as a king. It freaked him out. And it says Pilate heard this and tried to release him. He's nervous. So he comes up with another idea. And he says, hey, listen, crowd. Hey, it's Passover. It's the holidays. You know the tradition. I can let someone go. He's hoping, oh, it'll be Jesus, right? So he thinks of somebody they all hate, a vile terrorist murderer named Barabbas is in the slammer. They pull him out and put him next to Jesus. And Pilate says, pick one. I'll release one. Pilate's thinking, oh, he's a good doer. Jesus healed people and raised people from the dead and, and made their lives more happy. They'll pick him over someone I know they hate, right? He says, is it Jesus? And they yell, crucify, crucify, crucify. And is it Barabbas? Give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. So look at the switch. You think this was random? This wasn't random. This is a beautiful picture. The Holy Spirit handpicked Barabbas to tell the story of redemption. Barabbas is about to go free. He was once condemned. He's vile. He's guilty. He stands condemned, right? And you've got the son who's about to redeem the world and buy everybody back and make them the son of the father. Guess what the word Barabbas means? The name Barabbas means son of the father. So God the Father's blessing is to predestine criminals, vile, guilty, those who stand condemned, to be adopted into the family through the work that Jesus, standing next to the sons and daughters of the father, who should be condemned, rightly so, to stand free because why? Because off he goes and Barabbas is loosed. You know, when they came for Jesus in the garden, he says in John 18, you come for me, you're looking for me, here I am. Let these go. Afima me. It means forgive them. It's just the same word as forgive. There's the switch. You came for me, 
They're trying to get the disciples. The disciples are here. He says, you got me. Aphema me. Forgive them. Loose them. Let them go. It's everywhere. So off Jesus goes to pay for the privilege of becoming Barabbas or a daughter of the father. They go one way and the other. One goes to the cross to make the payment. And the other goes home to live their life. But it doesn't stop there. Then he says, and by the way, he takes us after he releases us. Listen, he, look at your text. He reveals his will and counsel to us. In other words, he'll take Barabbas, the son of the father. He'll take him aside. Now he's in the family. And he says, son, I want to tell you who I am, what I'm like, what pleases me, why you're here on earth, what's coming, what I think about life, how to bless me. In other words, God reveals to those who are adopted into his family. Your text says he reveals the mystery of life that only his people, the Barabbases of the world, can ever know. Nobody else knows what's coming in the book of Revelation except you. They don't know. They stand condemned. They're ready to suffer those things. And instead, you have chapters 6 through 18 of Revelation that tell you blow by blow, this guy's going to come to power. He's called the Antichrist. This is what he's going to do. 1260 days from this day to this day. And then I shall appear. He gives you times and dates. This is my heart. This is my mind. This is who I am. This is how to be saved. This is how to have a happy, healthy life. Here's the, the secrets to the mysteries of the universe that all come together in Christ are given and made known to those formerly standing condemned. Formerly Barabbas needing to, 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 to have his head removed, but adopted in to become a true Barabbas the son and the daughters of the most high God. That is redemption in the son, in love, predestined for that. The final blessing, two verses of God, the Holy Spirit. Yes, God, the Holy Spirit's not a force. One of our Jehovah's Witness friends, they, they, they don't accept the Trinity. They make fun of us. Uh, they'd rather call the energy of God the force, you know, may the force be with you kind of thing. Let me tell you, listen, Jesus knows how to use pronouns. And he says, when I ascend, I will send him, the comforter. He will teach you. He will comfort you. He will teach you all about me, the Holy Spirit. He, 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 never it, it, it. The Holy Spirit's the third person. And it's also often called the Spirit of Christ. And so, listen to this. I mean, he says, I, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him. And check this out. Because he lives with you and will be in you. One of the disciples said, man, we're just, we're so upset. You're leaving us on the night he was betrayed. He said, it's a good thing I go. Because if I go, I can send the spirit. And instead of sleeping by 
me at the fireplace, I will be inside you. Instead of being limited to one place in a human body, I will be able to get at the world through my people. In every heart, I can be inside you. So Thomas, Philip, it's a good thing that I go to the Father. The blessings of the Holy Spirit. So God's three words associated with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. A promise, a seal, and a guarantee. It's in your text here. Let's take a look at them. The promise. Why is the promise Holy Spirit? Well, back in the Old Testament... It was, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do this. Have faith in God. That faith would still save you. But it was a, listen, it was a religion based on works. The prophet said, a day is coming after sins are paid that God's spirit will come into your heart and change it from a works-based relationship. Thou shalt, thou shalt not to a new heart, new life, new desires. He said, I will put my spirit in you and I will change you in Ezekiel. I will lead you to desire new things and have a new life. This is what was promised, but it couldn't come. He couldn't take a uh, residence in our hearts until what? Until sins were paid for, until the fullness of God, time God sent his son in the likeness of a human being to pay our debt. Once that was paid, the Holy Spirit could come in and regenerate us because our sins were out of the way. The promise of the Holy Spirit not to have a dead religion. Oh, yeah, I've got religion. Religion is death. There's no life. When you open your heart to the living God, he comes in, the promised Holy Spirit. The second word I want you to see there is seal. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes into you, which is what is called born, being born again, he calls that a seal. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, he says, here's the process. The Holy Spirit helps you hear the word of God and helps you believe. And when you trust in Jesus, according to your verse, the Holy Spirit comes into you and seals you. Let's talk about the seal. In ancient times, what he means there for you to be thinking of is the seal of ownership that owners would brand onto their property to tell you this stuff belongs to this person. They would brand it, stamp that, that insignia on their belongings. So he's saying those things were outward signs. But when God owns a person, he comes on in the inside and he sears his image and his stamp of ownership upon your very spirit is engraved and marked. He marks your spirit inside of you, mine, belonging to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the, the one who facilitates the adoption that the Father has predestined and the redemption that the Son has bought is the facilitator of that is the spirit who comes in and goes, mine, into your heart. He puts the homing device in there. And now you're set and guided uh, toward heaven. That's the mark on your heart. Also, the seal signifies ownership. Um, the finished transa transaction. When we finish a transaction, there's a seal that says done and over. 
Like when Jesus says, it is finished. The work he did in us is done and over and completed. That's the seal. And also, uh, a seal signifies the security and protection of the believer. Now, the Roman tomb was sealed so that it could be secured and protected from vandalism or the disciples coming in and doing something. In the same way, God has set his seal upon us that we are secure and we are sealed in him. Let me remind you of a very intriguing verse in the story of Noah and the ark. When it was time to go in, the family goes in and the animals are in and anybody who's going to be saved through God's judgment is already in. Noah shuts the door, but here's this curious verse. Then the Lord shut him in. No tsunami, no judgment of God, no demon from hell, no mishap, no, nothing on the part of Noah and the eight who live. Nothing can be done. The Lord shut them in. He sealed them in the safety of his destiny for his people. This is a picture. There's only one door on the ark. If you wanted to escape and live, you had to go through that door. And then the Lord seals it shut. Nothing's going to open that door. That Jesus in John 10 says, I am the door. If anyone passes through me, he or she shall be saved. Why? Because the Father predestined it and chose you, and the Son paid for you with what? Gold and silver? No, the precious blood of a lamb, the Lamb of God. And that then once you got into the ark of Jesus Christ and the safety, he shuts you in with what? God himself puts the seal behind you and says, you are in there. There is nothing going to harm you or get in the way of God the Father's predestination of that ark. The son's payment for everybody on board and the spirit's sealing of the work of the triune God, the we, the us, the power of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sealed, done. Listen, here's what he's saying. He's saying, John got a look forward into heaven. He saw angels. He saw elders. He saw people seated at a feast called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you think in that vision that God blurred out the faces of those that John was seeing in heaven? No, of course, he wasn't seeing animation. He wasn't seeing stick figures. He wasn't seeing blurred out faces. He was seeing in the future of something that shall take place. He saw real life events happening in heaven. And guess who he saw there? You were there. 
Because he said he seated, past tense, he seats us in Christ in heavenly places. From God's point of view, he says, just so you know, I let John see your end. He saw you seated with the king at the table, enjoying and laughing and enjoying the presence of the saints of God at the wedding supper of the Lamb. You were spotted, you were there, and now you already know this. This is why he gives us these blessings. So that you already know the end of the story. It's not like, well, he saw a vision that if you do X, Y, and Z. No, 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 no. He saw something, and this is why you can't lose it. The word guarantee, the last word. It means in modern Greek, it's an engagement ring. It means also to, to pay uh, the first installment of something that legally binds you to buy the whole thing. So he's saying the Holy Spirit's in your heart as an engagement ring to the fullness of what's coming, the wedding, the culmination of heaven, a new body, a new life, reigning and ruling with Christ forever. He's given you the Holy Spirit as, as part of the payment and as, a, as a, an engagement ring. And I'm sorry, Jesus does not call off the wedding. And here's why. You're like, well, a wedding could be canceled. He could break the engagement. No, he can't. You know why? Because it, the wedding already happened. <laughs> the wedding, as far as God's concerned, there are no changes. There's no, right now, what John saw is what John will see, is what it will be. There's no popping in and out of the vision. You're either in Christ, you're there. If you believe, you were predestined to believe, you were chosen to believe, you were paid for by God the Son, and you were sealed by the Holy Spirit who put as himself in your heart a guarantee, an engagement, a down payment of what's coming your way, no matter what. And it's not based on anything you do. This is the cup of my blood called the new covenant. This is the contract, he says, my blood poured out. That's the arrangement, and that's why you can't lose your salvation, because it has nothing to do with your merits. It has nothing to do with your merits. What's the new covenant? The new covenant, he says, let me, I have that verse. Let's read it together out loud. Then he took the cup gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you. For, whoops, sorry, for many. You got it right. I just turned and I, yeah, you get it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Listen, covenant, the contract, it didn't, it's unilateral. It has nothing to do with you. Sorry. You cannot lose something if it's not conditional on you. It's a condition is on him. He says, the covenant, the arrangement I have with you, here's the basis of it. You do have to do one thing. You have to drink. You have to pick it up and say yes on the inside. And you do that through faith. When you have saving faith, you open your heart, he comes in, and then it all lines up. 
And if you're worried about, hey, it just sounds too complicated, like maybe I wasn't part of the original plan, believe. Just believe, and you're part of the original plan. You're safe. Ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case, all right? I rest my case, and here's the verdict, all right? It is hot up here. Here's my verdict. Here's the verdict. It doesn't matter if your life is upside down right now. I'm sorry, and I grieve with you at all your losses, but you're going to be okay. You don't have any problems to speak of when this is true. And this is why he can say, be joyful always and in everything give thanks because of the truths you just learned. Now, we're going to remember the Lord's death on our behalf, which brings it all together. So the ushers are going to come forward. The worship team is going to take their place. We're going to have a brief time of being able to remember that which holds everything together, the death of Christ on our behalf. So let's pray together. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Heavenly Heavenly Father, just thank you for your great love. We pray now as we get ready to take communion and to remember the terms of the covenant. All you just say, pick up the cup of salvation and make it yours. Help us to see the ease and trust you and to yield our wills to your goodwill. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the brothers are going to serve you cup and bread. Hold on. We'll have a song together. We'll come back and take both. All right. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.